Once or twice a season, we like to focus on the incredible results of our great profession. When you put together all the ingredients of our incredible industry, you get amazing, sometimes mind-blowing achievements. Today, we're going to discuss one of those incredible achievements, the Infrastructure Marvel Transcontinental Railroad. This is Infrastructure Junkies. Welcome, Infrastructure Junkies, to your show. This is a podcast created by right-of-way professionals for right-of-way professionals. The Infrastructure Junkies podcast is the voice of the right-of-way industry, exploring eminent domain, right-of-way acquisition, and infrastructure development. Okay, y'all, the Infrastructure Junkies podcast is recorded on location in New Orleans at the 2021 Transportation Symposium. We recorded live in San Antonio at the 2021 IRWA Annual Conference, but today's presentation is unique. As you see, I'm sitting in Virginia Beach, Virginia. Kristen Bennett is just outside of Fort Worth, Texas. Our special guest, who you'll meet in just a moment, he's sitting in Utah, but not in the room with the audience. And we're presenting both to a live audience at the 2022 Transportation Symposium in Utah, as well as to virtual attendees from all over. And we're doing all this while recording a podcast, which will be released next month. Wait a minute, Dave. Are you saying that this is a live studio audience, virtual, in-person, recorded, nationwide podcast extravaganza? That's what it is. And that's why we're going to need some luck. Now, you know, on Infrastructure Junkies, we focus on eminent domain, right-of-way acquisition, and infrastructure development. And so far this season, we've covered things that make our industry tick, like the Uniform Relocation Act. We've covered oil and gas, Indian property rights. You get the picture. But once or twice a season, we like to focus on the incredible results of our great profession. When you put together all the ingredients of our incredible industry, you get amazing, sometimes mind-blowing achievements. Today, we're going to discuss one of those incredible achievements, the Infrastructure Marvel Transcontinental Railroad. So, Kristen, would you please introduce our special guest to tell us this amazing story? Oh, I would be delighted to. Listeners, you are in for a treat today. We have with us Professor Greg Jackson. Now, Greg is best known as the creator, host, and head writer of the U.S. history podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. And I can tell you from experience, this is a podcast that certainly doesn't suck. It's fascinating. He makes regular appearances on the History Channel and other major history podcasts, radio, and has served as a historical consultant for the podcast American Elections Wicked Game. Greg is an associate professor at Utah Valley University, so he's a local for those of you in Utah today, in person. There he teaches courses in national security studies and integrated studies. He was a Burton scholar and earned his PhD in history from the University of Utah. Greg also holds an MA in French studies and a BA in history from Brigham Young University. And we said he's a Utah guy and he serves on his hometown's local planning commission. On a personal note, Dave and I met Greg at Podcast Movement in Nashville, Tennessee last year, and we were absolutely delighted and frankly, a little bit surprised when Greg agreed to join Infrastructure Junkies last season for a couple of episodes about another infrastructure marvel, the Brooklyn Bridge. He told us an incredible tale of the building of the Brooklyn Bridge and the human triumph and all of the trials and tribulations of that feat. Those are two of my favorite episodes that we've ever done, frankly. So Greg is a consummate storyteller. He's a great friend of the Infrastructure Junkies. I just learned after listening all the way through the post roll of his last episode 
that he's also a composer. From what I understand, he composed the music for the History That Doesn't Suck podcast, unless there's another Greg Jackson who is a composer. We will get to the bottom of this. I digress. Greg, you are our professor, and I know that you want to tell us a story. So to start out, can you just give us a brief overview of what we're going to be discussing today? Sure. That, that was far too kind of an introduction. Thank you. But yeah, happy to. The Transcontinental Railroad is one of my absolute favorite stories from American history, and it is one of the most outstanding pieces of infrastructure that's simply ever been built in the world. It brings everything about the United States together. It's a story of immigrants. It's a story that engages with the conflict of westward migration, movement, manifest destiny, and indigenous peoples who are here first. It is a story of human triumph. It's the story of America's rise as well, as we're going from, in a very physical and visual way, being this Eastern locked nation that's small and plain junior to the great powers of Europe to being this world power, this 800 pound gorilla. It's just everything you'd ever want in one story. And that's not even to get into the, the corruption or the personalities. So with that, let's go wherever you'd like to. Let's start with something that's amazing to me. I always just assumed that railroads were always here. Like maybe they came over on the Mayflower and there were already railroads. Or you think <laughs> maybe there were right. railroads in colonial times, but it's really the history of the American rail system isn't as old as you think. And its proliferation was like setting off a bomb. So let's, let's start back there before we get to this idea of a transcontinental railroad. Can we just briefly talk about that angle? Absolutely. Something that I think is often lost on people is just how new the world that we live in today really is in terms of technology and this piece of infrastructure. Our ability to move transit is a major piece of that. Your ability to move rapidly over land in George Washington's time, you know, late 1700s, was exactly on par just about with the emperors of ancient Rome. The fastest way to move on land, so we're going to leave water out of the picture for just a second, but the fastest way to move on land was on a horse galloping, but that's not sustainable. So if you're going any sort of long distance, uh, short distance, sure, you can get up to 25, maybe 30 miles per hour if you're very gifted in the saddle and able to handle yourself on a horse, but going a long distance, you're not going to break more than two miles per hour pretty much because you're either walking or you've got a beast of burden that can't really go much faster without having to break so often and stop. That's it. So imagine that world where two miles per hour is your max, unless you're going on water, you know, then you can get up a few knots, depends on how, how the winds are blowing that day and, and sleeker designs of ships move things along. And that's where you have a lot of cities that develop along waterways. That's why the Mississippi river, the Potomac, these massive rivers are so crucial. They're basically the freeways of the ancient world. So when we talk about a nation that's spanning a continent and there isn't some rich, you know, number of rivers that's running east, west, north, south, that's going to connect everything. The railroad's the only way you're going to really connect all of this together. And it doesn't even exist until we get into the early 1800s. I think I read somewhere it was either 1830 or the early 1830s that they were actually first testing locomotives that would carry human beings. Yeah, so we have some early rail that the steam engines developing in Britain in the 1700s. That's where the Industrial Revolution really gets its kick. It gets off the ground. And part of that's because of just the natural resources there. I mean, the British would love you to think it's because they're smarter than everyone else. Really, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. 
the island simply didn't have, let's remember that the UK, it's sitting on an island, even if it's a big one. It just didn't have enough wood to continue relying on wood as a fuel source. And so they started turning more and more to those mounds of coal that they have. And as as that happened, that kind of cracked the door open for advancements in what steam engines were doing. We got more and more powerful steam engines. Initially, they were only used to clear water out of mines, pretty much. But with those stronger steam engines, I'll try to spare going into all the detailed iterations because I know that's not our story today. But those stronger steam engines were able to start pulling carts on the rails that you would have near mines. And initially, they were only used to move goods. But when we get to 1830, that's when George Stevenson, uh, a brilliant engineer from northern England, he gets the Liverpool-Manchester line going. And this is about 30 miles long. It's connecting these two cities and it screams at an astounding 30 miles per hour. Wow. And again, remember the context of what we just talked about, right? Going 30 miles per hour and being seated. You don't have to worry about riding the horse, controlling the horse. This thing moves regularly. You're not going to have to rest it. You just put more fuel in and boom, it, it turns around and keeps going. This is mind blowing technology. And this is why it's known as the steam horse. You know, it makes sense. Why would the early locomotive be called a steam horse. This is the only thing that people can compare it to in terms of its ability to go. Well, in the mid-1800s, by the time we began building rails over here in the New World, the West, most of it was untamed. So where did we get this vision of taking an iron horse and running it from East Coast to West Coast? Who envisioned that and, and, and how do we get to that point? Well, there are a few people who have that in mind and it's it's really incredible. We're only in the 1830s with literally, but a few hundred miles of rail having been laid here in the United States. And it's all on the East Coast, you know, connecting major cities. Asa Whitney, he's this entrepreneur businessman from the East, but he has been going across the, the country. You know, at, at this point, let's also bear in mind what the United States really is. So the place I'm at and where this live audience is right now, Utah, this is not a part of the United States. At this point, it's technically claimed by Mexico. Mexico really has no actual governance going on, though. It is still very much an indigenous, lived in and pretty uninterrupted territory. That goes all the way out to California. That's all nominally claimed by Mexico, formerly a part of New Spain. You get up into the Oregon country. We're talking about a place that's still disputed between Britain and the United States. So this is a much smaller U.S. Nonetheless, Americans are already looking to Oregon country. They want to go out there. They want to settle it. And the middle of the United States is seen as the great American desert. That's what it's called. It's just Utah seen as a wasteland. As much as I love living here, that's the reality. So you're thinking about how can you span this massive, you know, what we're talking about from the, the Mississippi River to Oregon country. You're talking about nearly 2000 miles. So. How do you span that? Well, pioneers are, are walking that or, or using an oxen cart. But Asa Whitney, he's getting across this and he's been engaged in trade with China. So he's thinking about how can we get goods from China to the United States? Well, if there was a way to move rapidly across the continent, then all we have to do is deal with the Pacific. You get goods from China out to California. And then we're all connected. We're, we're good to go. So he's dreaming what are just thought insane ideas. People are blowing him off left and right. He makes his case in Congress. Congress laughs at him. They think he's a joke. But as the years pass, 
rail is expanding rapidly. We go from a few hundred miles of rail in the 1830s to nearly 30,000 miles of rail by the eve of the Civil War. And as that happens, really from private industry, they are wanting to connect things. They want to move their goods faster. The government is really not playing much of a role in it. And of course, that creates some interesting issues as as well. We have regulation issues that that we can get into a little bit later. But the more rail that's laid, as we get to the point that there is rail going from the East Coast all the way out to the Mississippi, it becomes less and less insane, though still quite insane in, in the eyes of many, to think about laying rail that would actually connect the East and West Coasts. And so this concept, when it ultimately evolved, I think they started in Omaha, Nebraska, And the vision was to stretch from there to California, San Francisco. Is that right? Yeah. So it it kind of goes two different ways. Building up to the Civil War, Congress does start entertaining the idea of a transcontinental railroad. Asa Whitney is now out of the picture. There's a commission, uh, a gentleman, a senator by the name of Jefferson Davis, a name that might be familiar to a few people out there. Yeah. Uh, he strongly suggests a route that happens to cut through the southern states for some reason. He thinks that's in the best interest of the nation. So there's a lot of argument in Congress about even where the route should go. But then as we get to the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln, who's Geez, the man's president, he's trying to deal with the Civil War, yet he sees the vision and need for the U.S. economy to connect East and West. So he starts thinking about a transcontinental railroad in a very serious way. Omaha, Nebraska is going to be where it starts on the eastern side, but on the western side, they're going to start building in California. And that's where another dreamer, kind of Asa Whitney's second generation, if you will, not that the two gentlemen ever met, but Theodore Judah, or Crazy Ted, as he's known, because he believes in a transcontinental railroad, he is suggesting a a rail line that can just connect California basically over the Sierra Nevada mountains and hoping that if he can do that, then he can eventually sell people and connecting to the larger transcontinental railroad. Have I dumped enough information? I apologize. That was a <laughs> no, bit no, of no. Yeah. That's a big <laughs> dump. And, and the story, <laughs> the story of how that happened could be its own podcast episode, how they eventually decided all the players and putting this together. But I think we'll leave that to the next episode and get on with how they accomplished it. Kristen, I think you had a question. Yeah, I do have a question. I, I did listen. And for those of you listening, Greg has a fantastic three-part series about this on history that doesn't suck, where he goes into great detail about how this thing even got off the ground and the finance and the crazy behind the scenes things. And there's explosions. I mean, it's insane. But one of the things that really fascinated me was the early engineering problem about determining the whole five foot, four foot, eight and a half inches. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about that whole debate and and what that was all about and how they resolved that? Absolutely. So as I mentioned, initially rail is spreading basically just through private industry. Well, the issue that brings is when you start talking about trying to connect the different rails. Since every company's kind of done their own thing, you have all sorts of crazy gauges out there, and that being the distance between the two rails. So if you've got a train that's set to run on rails that are set at five feet apart, well, what happens when you try to connect with uh, a track that is set for less than that? Say, to just grab a very random number, four feet, eight and a half inches, which is what the Northeast seems to like, (laughs) eight and a half Yeah, that's what they land at. So you have an incompatibility issue, right? It's like being an Apple user who's suddenly being asked to plug into something from Android. You're you're screwed. You're hosed. You're toast. (laughs) So 
Because of this, Lincoln says, okay, it's time for a little bit of government regulation. We're going to get on the same gauge so that we can connect all these rail lines together. So, of course, out in California, where they've been using five feet as their distance, they're petitioning to maintain that because they don't want to incur the cost and difficulty of changing their gauge. And the Northeast is similarly saying, no, 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 four feet, eight and a half is the way to go. Lincoln has a private vote with his cabinet members. They all write down which one they prefer. He gathers up the slips and he takes them to his office and he never shows anyone. We have no idea to this day, actually, what everyone on the cabinet voted. <laughs> it was his own private blind ballot. All we know is that he emerges from this and he says, okay, we're going to do five feet. That's the gauge. Congress then, you know, if for those who know their, their basic U.S. government, Lincoln can do that with an executive order, but Congress can always override an executive order. So Congress steps in and goes, mm, four foot eight and a half. <laughs> Lincoln doesn't fight that. He just rolls with it. I should add, everyone in Congress was pretty happy about that, except for some reason, California senators. I bet. So, so at least yeah. we're on the same rail at this point. And I yes. understand that essentially there were two companies set up. There was the Central Pacific in California building from west to east and the Union Pacific that was set up to build from east to west. And somewhere they were going to meet in the middle. Now, Greg, when I did my research on this, it sounds like it was set up as a race between the two companies. What's the motivation or what are the spoils for winning that race? Absolutely. It was set up as a race. Lincoln was leveraging the incentive on these two parts to get each company to build quickly. So anywhere you laid a mile of track, you picked up land rights, basically claims mineral rights, you know, which I'm sure this whole crowd knows mineral rights and uh, property rights. Those are not one the same. So these companies were eager to pick up rights to all the minerals surrounding. They also got bonds. Now, the way that these bonds work, they were more like loans. But there are huge economic incentives in terms of cash being handed out by the U.S. government immediately per mile, as long as those miles are all connected. And that came back to haunt the Central Pacific as they needed to build in segments. They had all sorts of segments of rail built out ahead that wasn't connected to their terminus in California, and they couldn't collect those bonds or claims until they connected all of it. But we can get to that possibly. Got it. Anyhow, those are the motivations. So not only do you get the bonds, do you make the money for having built the rail, but this is rail that you then control. So imagine this, you're a railroad company perpetually in the future. You're going to be able to be the ones that's charging for the tickets, right? You're controlling who, who runs it. If you've played Monopoly at some point in your life, you're snatching up all, all those railroads and all the money that's to be made in perpetuity. That makes me think of like the toll roads that these, you know, foreign entities come in and build the toll roads so they can control them and make the money. Very interesting. Okay, let me ask you this, Greg. So there's a lot of work to be done here. We're trying to get across the country with our four feet, eight and a half inch rails. Who's doing this work? Is it immigrants? Is it Americans? Is it who, who's doing the work? Yeah, we, cert- we certainly can't get anybody to do the work now. So who was doing it back then? <laughs> You know, it's, it's the same old story. You're not going to get the, uh, the, the fat and happy to do the hard work. So you do have some born and raised Americans. They come from the lowest classes. But you do have a number of Civil War vets as the war ends. And think about this. I think this is quite fascinating. You've got Union and Confederate veterans, blue and gray, who are shooting at each other a year earlier. Now, right next to each other, shoulder by shoulder, lifting their spades together as they're working to build this unifying piece of infrastructure. I think that's quite 
fascinating and powerful in a way. You've got a lot of uh, newly emancipated Black Americans. This is economic opportunity. It's a job. And frankly, it, it gets you out of the South. That's a draw. This is also a time of heavy immigration from particularly Ireland. So there are a lot of Irish who are building the Pacific. So going from Omaha and building West, it was said, and you know, it's obviously hyperbole, but that the fact that it was ever said, it underscores, you know, the, the kernel of truth that the claim was that there was one Irishman buried under every railroad tie. Because that's how many immigrants, you know, were, wow. were pouring in from Ireland. And, and this is the worst work you can do. It's backbreaking. It pays terribly. And frankly, that's why it, you know, draws people who don't have many other opportunities. So if you're college educated, you're not going to be turning the spade here. You, you don't have an education. You've been enslaved. Uh, you have few opportunities because the war's devastated your family situation. You have nothing better going for you. You're a fresh off the boat, literally immigrant with no connections and you don't even speak English. You see it as an opportunity. Now, on the other side, with the Central Pacific, they're struggling to get any employees at all. Pretty much anyone who gets over there, including the Irish, who tend to be the main pool, they show up. And this is still, you know, we're still in, in the California gold rush era. I mean, it's not 1849, but we're close enough. There's silver to be had in Nevada. So a lot of people show up. They do backbreaking work for a week or two and they go, what on earth am I doing? Right. There's gold in them. their hills. They take off. They're done. So the Central Pacific, they decide to turn to uh, to Chinese labor. Chinese immigration is just starting to take off. And sadly, California has enacted some very racist laws that prohibit Chinese immigrants from working in a number of industries. And that includes turning to mining. And between those laws and violence simply against Asian Americans, they see working on the railroad as an opportunity. So they will stick around. And Charlie Crocker, one of the big four who runs uh, the Central Pacific, he seizes on the opportunity. He says, come on in. Happy to give you work. Happy to have you work. But that was controversial at first. I think one of his partners had wanted nothing to do with Chinese immigrants providing labor. But it sounds like, number one, they didn't have much of a choice. But number two, there were certain aspects of the Chinese, whether it was cultural or maybe it was lack of opportunity, that they were kind of the savior of the Central Pacific. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's a fascinating and contradictory story. Charlie Crocker, I, I definitely want to give the man credit for, frankly, being able to see past much of the mentality of his era and, and his own partners. I'll give you a fun little anecdote. James Strobridge, they called him Stro, this tall, powerful Irish-American. He certainly held to the ideas of the day and was convinced that, that the Chinese were inferior to people who were white. And when Crocker said, we're, we're going to hire a Chinese immigrants, Stroh, he was like, okay, for grading, for grading. All right, grading, but nothing more. Well, then Charlie goes, you know what? We're going to let them do some Mason work too. We're going to have them do more advanced things. We need them to do it. And, and Charlie's that practical. He's seen past these racist perspectives. And Stroh says, and I'm quoting here. I want to be clear because that's the only uh, reason I'd use I'd use this fairly questionable word. Uh, Stroh says, you want an exclamation. This is written down, journaled. He says, you want to make Masons out of Chinamen. And he's absolutely, you know, blown away at this. And Crocker responds, I, I love this. Did they not build the Chinese wall, the greatest piece of Masonry in the world? And <laughs> that makes Stroh Burn. pauses for a second. Yeah, 100% goes, okay. okay. Point taken. I didn't think that through. What happens? They end up being phenomenal. 
uh, frankly, it, it is an absolutely underrated and undertold story. The, these Chinese workers are then put up against Charlie Crocker leans into competition just like Abraham Lincoln did. So they bring in at one point while they're digging tunnels through granite. Charlie Crocker brings in this expert drilling team from Wales. They're world renowned. And he has them drilling on one side. He sets up his Chinese workers drilling on the other side and says, "Okay, let's see who's faster. Let's see who's better. Who does better work? Who executes best? 24 hours go. They do this a few times every time the Chinese workers beat the beat the Welsh. So by the time we get to the end of this, Strowbridge has absolutely been won over. And Charlie Crocker, who, you know, we can also talk about the way that he's still exploiting these workers. He does pay these Chinese workers less than Irish and other workers are being paid because, frankly, he he can get away with it. Uh, So I'm not going to excuse him on that front. And yet he's one of the few people who's even seen the value of employing Chinese people. And because he kind of in, in this you know, mixed way at times is standing up for the Chinese. They come to be known as, quote unquote, Crocker's pets. That's what they're referred to as in Congress and in different spaces. And this is the great irony, right? No one will do this work except the Chinese. No one. There are congressional investigations a decade or so later where they grill Crocker because why were you hiring these immigrants and not giving jobs to Americans? And Charlie's wow. just sitting there like, are you freaking kidding me? No one would do this work except the Chinese. And now you want to give me crap because I hired the only people who, who this, would do it. Right. This rings a bell. History like really today. history really does repeat itself, doesn't it? So we There's some elements here and there. Uh, I see. I see. So I think the first rails were laid somewhere around July of 1865. And then, Kristen, you, you raised a, the next question on the story. Yeah. One one thing that was really intriguing to me on your three-part series on the Transcontinental Railroad was talking about the detailed description for laying the rail, how quickly they were moving, how it was put together. So I wondered if you could just kind of share with our listeners a little bit about how they were actually, those people that were out there doing the work, what were they doing? How, what did it look like? Oh, yeah. I mean, this is a fine-tuned groom machine, especially for the Pacific Union. I want to be clear on that. Central Pacific had a way tougher path than the Union Pacific. But for the UP, where at least for the hundreds of miles, it's very relatively flat, clear land. You'd have surveyors who were going out at times 100 plus miles ahead of the actual construction crew. They would drive wooden stakes into the ground with notes that would indicate this is the path. We're going to need to fill in land here. We're going to need to build a bridge there. These trees will need to be felled. Now, a complicating factor there, you have Native Americans who would find these stakes and rip them out because this is going across their land. So that would happen here and there, but we had the route planned out very far in advance. So then we, we get to the actual team as it comes through. Let's start at the whole top of the scale. First of all, we've got the, the boarding boss. So this is the top guy. He's dealing with all the, the problems and challenges that, that arise. He's in charge of the whole camp. You really don't have medical doctors. He kind of plays that role if someone has an injury. Workman's comp, not exactly the best in the era. We'll, we'll leave it at that. We've got this table boss. He's in charge of the horses, the mules. Again, we are laying the infrastructure to have something other than animals be the, the, the means by which things move. So think about this. If you've got literally an army of construction workers, that means you've got an army of animals because you don't have trucks. You don't have all those modern conveniences that, that we enjoy when we do construction. Oh, wow. After that, we've got the walking boss. And this is, think of this as like the, the guy who's over a given crew. So 
He's called the walking boss. He's going to walk back and forth. He's pacing. He's checking. He's making sure people are actually working. Now, there's a misnomer that walking bosses were especially cruel, that they would beat their employees. And that's ridiculous. They could not want to afford to have their their workers incapacitated and unable to work. So basically what they would do is just dock and pay. But usually it just took a, a good string of swears to get a guy working again. That was about it. IJs, this is now our 48th episode of the Infrastructure Junkies podcast. You may not realize it, but getting this successful podcast off the ground took six months of research, brainstorming, and equipment testing. And each season requires a significant investment of time, money, and resources to keep this thing going. Our very generous sponsors make it all possible. Today's episode is sponsored by Kristen Bennett's company, Blackbird Right-of-Way. Now, I've worked with Kristen in the right-of-way industry for about four years in various capacities. I've even taken several relocation courses from her. She's recognized nationally as one of the top relocation specialists in the United States, and that's not an overstatement. Now, Kristen, I understand that Blackbird has recently made some big decisions, and they're going to take some big steps. You've always been known for first-rate relocation services in Texas, and is that about to change? That's right, Dave. I've consulted with my team, and we've made some pretty big strategic decisions lately. You know, we're relocation specialists. We've handled hundreds of relocations, and we've handled the most complex and complicated relocations you can imagine. And we're going nationwide. You're going nationwide. That's right. We will provide relocation assistance services anywhere in the U.S. Anywhere in the U.S.? What if it's just a single relocation parcel? Even better. From one parcel to 100, we're your relocation specialists. And here's the great thing. There are tons of entities in the United States who may have to condemn a parcel and there's a relocation. They don't have any relocation help on staff. They don't know where to start. So they spin their wheels and they try to figure out what to do from start to finish. Don't do that. Save some time. Get the project done. Call Blackbird. Blackbird is a DBE certified entity. Bring them onto your team. Find them at blackbirdrow.com, blackbirdrow.com. And take a minute and check out their new website. Thanks, Blackbird. So from there, as far as the road itself goes, first come the graders. So they come up, they see the stakes, they see the instructions from the surveyors. They're building up two feet off the ground so that if it rains, you know, we don't get the tracks flooded out. So you'll still see that you, if you go by sections of the old transcontinental railroad, and of course you can still see that with some modern railroads, you know, it, it's the elevation to try and keep it above potential flooding. And then it'd be 12 feet wide because they've got to be able to fit two sets of tracks, each of which we know will be set at a gauge of what? Four, Four feet, feet, eight, eight and, and a half inches. inches. <laughs> Perfect. Oh, look, you were paying attention. That's great. Yeah. So 12 feet wide, they get that to perfection. And then in, in comes the, the next team. And so we just, you got to picture this in your head, right? We've got hundreds of miles of surveyed land, this 12 by two foot path of compact dirt that's being laid. And then after that, as the tracks are coming down, you've got the animals that are pulling from the train as the train itself, a locomotive is moving in the back. You then have horses or mules that are pulling them for the last mile or so. They show up with the rail teams of five. And you can just imagine how jacked these guys are that or they're dead. <laughs> um, they're using tongs to pick up 30 foot rails, each of which weigh 560 pounds within 60 seconds. They've dropped that in place. They then hoof it back to grab the next rail while they're doing that. Another team is coming in to drive those rails into place while yet another team is putting the ties down. So as all of that happens, we've got 10 spikes per rail with 40 
rails per mile. We're laying four rails every 60 seconds. So it's almost just rhythmic. You can just picture this scene in your head, the way all these overlapping chains are working. It's amazing. And this is how they laid several miles of rail per day without any real advanced technology. That's mind boggling. It really is to think that, and I read this somewhere, either in the Stephen Ambrose book or on, I heard it on your podcast, that when they were cooking, they were laying ties, rails, spikes, everything at about the speed you walk. Can you imagine that? Laying 560 pound rails, and that's not even including the ties, which are enormous in and of themselves. It's phenomenal. So I think an important piece to remember in this is that the Union Pacific, it's really being led by a lot of former Civil War generals. Jack Casement, he's a former general. He's very much over the construction. Grenville Dodge, he's kind of the head guy. If you've seen the TV series, Hell on Wheels, Bohannon is kind of a composite character of both of those figures. Both of them are are former generals from the Civil War. And again, many of their employees, those who, who are American, they're former soldiers. This is an army. They're executing this construction project with the precision and discipline that you'd expect from an army. Greg, that part of your podcast talking about this, I had to go back and re-listen because I thought, I think he just said two or three miles a day were being completed. I must have zoned out and not heard that correctly, but that's that's correct, right? Oh, 100%. Yeah. And, and as this goes on, two to three miles a day becomes small fries. They get to where they're laying more than that a day. One thing that our industry is particularly interested in is property and property rights. And you touched on this, but I want to focus on it for a second. We're building these rail lines through property where other people already live. And they were people who didn't consider themselves part of the American population. So can you talk a little bit about what the impact was on various Indian tribes and how they reacted to it? Absolutely. So one thing to understand is that, first of all, there are some problematics, even just talking about Native Americans as as a large group. You know, it makes about as much sense as when we try and say Europe, especially when you go farther back in, in Europe's history. You're lumping together nations that have different languages, different cultural practices, see each other's enemies. So that's an important thing to remember when we talk about Native Americans as well. I mean, the reason we're going through here with the Transcontinental Railroad, we're talking about Pawnee, Northern Cheyenne, several branches of the Lakota people, the Oglala in particular. We get to the Shoshone when we're into what we know today as Utah. You've got to think of each of these as their own separate sovereign nations. It's not like they're working together throughout U.S. history, throughout the Western movement. It's very rare that you actually see a large number of indigenous groups kind of come together, though it does partly when, when they really realize the existential threat that they're facing with Western movement. So let's keep in mind that they're separate. Now let's keep in mind that one shared thing that that they typically have is not viewing property as something that you really own. Perhaps a, a good comparison would be that we wouldn't really think about you owning the air so much. Now we can talk about airspace. I realize that. But, you know, if, if I were to go up to you and, and say, I, I want to charge you for the oxygen of breathing right now, you kind of be like, how does that even work? That doesn't make sense to me. But that's a little bit lost in translation. And then you get treaties worked out where with with that missing piece of, of understanding, often the U.S. government is 
whether naively or intentionally, I might even say maliciously, taking advantage of getting a signature from someone who really can't speak for the entire indigenous nation. And so again, sometimes you have U.S. officials walking away thinking, okay, yeah, we did that honestly. We did that good. This is a fair, correct treaty. And you have others where they walk away totally knowing that they were dishonest, disingenuous through the whole process and got a signature from someone who cannot actually speak for that entire nation. And by the time things get filed in D.C., it's all lost. Well, in some instances, there were treaties which were in effect. We needed to build, or by we, I mean the American government, needed to build rail through the land which was governed by that treaty. So we just went back and vacated them. Totally. Yeah. And so that, and that absolutely happens. So some leaders were coming around the Civil War. So you're going to hear a lot of names that we think of as Union war heroes, like William Tecumseh Sherman. He's sent out as a part of this, this Western movement. And the perspective very much is that there is a quote unquote Indian problem that basically these people need to agree to new treaties or they need to be cleared out. And so you do have initial offers, but you know that the dynamic here, it isn't so much a, hey, we'd really like to acquire this property and, and let's go back and forth. We understand your rights and we're going to respect those as much as mm, we're going to make this treaty happen and we can do this the easy way or the hard way. And that's pretty much right. what they're told. Well, and Greg, we've we've just very recently learned a lot more about Indian property rights. We just did an episode with Professor Bethany Berger from UConn, who is an expert in Indian property rights, and that episode kind of made my jaw hit the floor. So, and and you for you to touch on this now, I'm like, oh, I, I know a little bit about this now because of Bethany Berger. But yeah, that's a uh, blows your mind. Let's go back to the players in this race from east to west and west to east. It sounded to me like the Union Pacific, who was coming from east to west, had it a little easier. The ground was flatter. None of it was easy. Let me be clear. None of this was easy. But they didn't face as many of the challenges that the Central Pacific did because of the terrain. I mean, that was the first thing. So let's move over into the challenges faced by the Central Pacific Railroad. Sure. So the uh, Central Pacific has a far, far more difficult path. I mean, they're going through the Sierra Nevada mountains, whereas for the Union Pacific, Echo Canyon in Utah is about as bad as it gets. Their longest tunnel is going to be still shy of 300 feet, whereas the Central Pacific, they're tunneling through granite mountains at an altitude of about 7,000 feet. So think about this, even when they're not tunneling, they've got to make that grade. And you're making that grade again without any sort of modern technology. So we're talking about building trussels that are entirely made of wood that you're going to run or locomotive over, spanning 100-foot gaps that are two, 300 feet deep, going up the spine, essentially, as it's seen, of the Sierra Nevada Mountains. And then as we come to the granite, this is incredible, difficult work. Well, actually, forgive me, before I get to the tunnels, let me also mention Cape Horn. This is a segment as they're getting up to, to the top of the Sierra Nevada mountains, where there's a 75 degree angle, basically almost a sheer cliff. And they need to have about three miles where there's a ledge for, for the train to run on. So it's so steep that the Chinese workers, they can't even get the footing to actually dig or, or chip away. They have to descend from the top of the cliff and hang about 2000 feet over the ground in baskets with static ropes. Now, I'm a rock climber. I know what it is to hang pretty high off the ground. But one of the things I appreciate is that I have a good partner. All I have to focus on is my staying up there. I'm not trying to do another job while I'm at it. And I have these high-tech ropes that are actually built to stretch, right, to absorb the blow should I fall in, in these very secure harnesses. 
they are weaving their own baskets and their own traditional ways that they brought from China and then hanging off of rope that, again, they've made as they then deal with dynamite, drill little holes, pack them with dynamite and then tug, you know, and say, hey, pull me up fast. No, that's a no for me, Greg. That's a hard no for me, my friend. I hear you. And I don't think OSHA would be particularly keen on this either. Yeah, I don't think so. Well, we talked a little bit about the tunneling through granite. I will point our listeners again to your podcast to hear a lot more detail about the introduction of explosives. Nitroglycerin. Dangerous. Yes. It also sped things up quite a bit, correct? It did. So nitroglycerin is a recently discovered invention by one Alfred Noble, Nobel Peace Prize, named after him. And it's billed as being this really safe explosive that you can ship it without much worry of of things (laughs) happening to it. This is genuinely the belief initially, but they learned really quickly, of course, that they're absolutely wrong. It can blow up in transit and terrible accidents happen where they can't even find the remains of employees. The the body is simply non-existent. It's gone. They aren't they aren't even a splotch. Yeah. So they try to avoid it because of that. And yet, as they get to these tunnels now, think about this. From the business perspective, here we get to that balancing of right the, the the finances and taking on safety risks. And you don't have a highly regulated industry at this point. The government isn't saying that you've got to wear hard hats. You got to take breaks. You, you know what I mean? All that stuff is developing. So it takes eight hours to drill four inches into granite. And we're talking about drilling tunnels, the summit tunnel being the most famous. That tunnel is 1,659 feet. And you're moving at a rate of four inches per eight hour shift. They're working three, eight hour shifts. So 24 hours a day, constantly with teams of nine, where you've got three men on each level, one down at the feet, one waist high, one head high. And they're all swinging their 14 to 18 pound sledgehammers as two others hold on to those stakes that are being drilled into the granite. You know, someone missed with a hammer. You know that. Oh happened. Boy. Yeah. So, someone Granted, didn't have a hand. This makes me feel like I don't ever have any right to complain about a hard day at work ever again. Not as a relocation agent. No. That's where they turn to nitroglycerin because they're, they're drilling these little holes and then they're packing in the black powder, you know, dynamite and exploding things. But at, at a rate of four inches per eight hour shift, it's just not moving. And remember, they're racing the Union Pacific. Right. Right. And then there's the cost of food and time. You're paying hourly wages to, to these employees. And eventually the Central Pacific goes, we just got to we got to try nitroglycerin. We've got to do it. We have to move faster. So they started blasting their way through the mountains, I guess. And here and there. Yeah. Yeah. So this is where we get to the Central Pacific having unconnected pieces of track, because right. the other thing they do is they go, OK, we're going to do multiple tunnels at once. If we move linearly, we're losing all this time. So they just start attacking the mountain. They have 13 different tunnels being dug at the same time and from different sides. So summit tunnel, they are actually hitting it from both sides and they tunnel down from the summit of the mountain so they can tunnel from the middle. So they've actually got four sides of that tunnel being dug and blasted at the exact same time. And the amazing thing about this, primarily, again, done by the Chinese, obviously some brilliant engineering as well on the part of the Central Pacific. When they come out of that thing, they are one inch off. Now explain that. I know what you're talking about, but I want the listeners to actually grasp this. When they come out of that thing, what do you mean by that? What I mean is that this massive hole that is meant to have two tracks running through it, so 12, you know, more than 12 feet wide, frankly, as they connect with each other, their paths of these big holes going through mountains are one inch off from perfect alignment. One from one side, one from the other, through a mountain, one inch off. 
one inch off. That's amazing. And structure marvel. Absolutely. No, this, this is amazing. It's, it's absolutely astounding. Now, eventually they get through, and this is where things heat up. And I understand, Greg, that by 1869, the competition was on for the great state of Utah, which is where you're sitting and where the symposium's occurring. And that's where the race from either side really heated up, from what I understand. And again, what was the big deal about Utah? Utah, to this day, uh, right now, Utah very much likes to uh, hold itself up. And I probably got some local bias. I I think that this is fair to say something of a crossroads of the West. So controlling the track out to Utah gave you control of where the other lines were going to go connecting to the the West Coast, because there really weren't any other settlements, to be frank. You basically had the Mormon pioneers who'd shown up in Utah, and we're now expanding up into Idaho and as far down as San Bernardino in California today. But really, Salt Lake was kind of your hub, as small as it was then. So for the Central Pacific, you know, they want to be able to basically control everything that happens from Utah on. They'll control all the commerce of the West Coast. Similarly, the Union Pacific, they don't want to give that up. Furthermore, Utah has phenomenal resources. Utah's a great place to mine. Now, it's not a great place to farm, as any Mormon pioneer from 1847 on would be able to tell you. But if you're looking for coal, well, getting back to Echo Canyon and up into that neck of the woods, that's what the big fight's for. So they literally grade right past each other while political shenanigans are being pulled in D.C. with both companies trying to get Congress to say that the Central Pacific Line or the Union Pacific Line is the is the true transcontinental line. They've wasted hundreds of miles of resources blowing past each other. And sometimes we literally had, you know, uh, Chinese workers from the from the Central Pacific going east, Irish workers from the Union Pacific going west. And they've, in many ways, as much as they're both being taken advantage of by their employers, you know, they've kind of bought into their teams. You've got slurs, angry words being yelled at, uh, across the two lines because they're that close as they are quite literally building past one another. So, Professor, we just have five minutes left in our presentation. It's been fascinating. So I think this is the perfect time to take the last five minutes for you to describe the last gap where the Union Pacific was racing towards the Central Pacific. So as we get toward the very end, Charlie Crocker, who has built through some of the most horrendous, beautiful, majestic, yet difficult terrain that the United States has to offer, had a much tougher road to hoe than the Union Pacific. He's tired of the Union Pacific bragging about the mileage they've been able to lay in a day, and they've laid north of five. Charlie says, we're going to lay 10. Now, there's a misnomer that this is an actual race moment, like they're really racing down to the last second. No, they've determined what the meeting point is going to be. But this is just a matter of pride and honor. So he very much stacks the deck. You know, he gets all of his supply chain situated the, the night before. But as, as soon as that steam engine whistle gets going the next morning, they just get cranking. You have these jacked Irishmen on the Central Pacific. 90%, I'll add, 90% of workers were Chinese, about 10% were Irish. Irish tended to have the job of carrying rails. So out come the rails, the Chinese workers jump in get them into place before sundown. They lay 10 miles of rail. So sun up to sundown, that's less than 24 hours. They lay 10 miles of rail. I've lived through a lot of freeway construction between growing up in California and living most of my adult life in Utah. I'll tell you what, 10 miles of new usable path showing up between sun up and sundown. 
That sounds absolutely insane. And yet that's what they did. It's a record that will probably never be broken because we frankly don't really use rail like we did then. And there's a sign commemorating that today as well. I would urge anyone who's at this conference in person. I mean, you're in Utah. You can go up to the national park. That is where the ceremony was held, where they officially brought things together on May 10th, 1869. It's up by Ogden, north of the Great Salt Lake. And there, ceremonially, you know, the, the nation was tied together in a very physical way. I would say also in something of a spiritual way. Now, East and West were connected. What took six months to walk as a pioneer was now but a ticket to ride. And you could zip across the country. Commerce can zip across the country. It absolutely changes the United States. So the final numbers. That gives me chills. It does. Wow. It does. The final numbers. Yeah. How many in this particular infrastructure project, how many miles of rail were laid? How many for by the Union Pacific and how many by the Central Pacific? Union Pacific laid 1,086. Central Pacific with its tougher tracks to lay laid 690, which I mean, I have to note this for such a great piece of American uh, infrastructure comes out to 1,776 miles, 1776 and no that's, way. <laughs> that's exactly it. <laughs> I don't think we're going to get a better piece of trivia to end on. So, Professor no, Greg Jackson, that's... Kristen has one final message. I have a question. Are you the composer of the History That Doesn't Suck theme music? <laughs> uh, I, I am. I wrote the main theme as I grew out of just being my own little basement podcast uh, after two years. Airship is the company I now work with for sound design, and they did some additional compositions and they did a rearrangement with my blessing. But yes, I'm the original. My guitar's back there. I mean, yeah, I grew up in a musical family. Well, that is impressive. I don't think there's anything that Greg Jackson can't do. Thank you for being with us today. <laughs> Guys, go listen to History That Doesn't Suck. Follow them, subscribe. You can follow them on Twitter at HTDS Pod. While you're at it, why don't you subscribe to our show, Infrastructure Junkies, and you can follow us on Twitter. It's at IJPod. Greg, you are amazing, and we are so grateful for the time that you've spent with us today, and thank you for teaching us all about the Transcontinental Railroad. It's been a blast. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. 